Hey, welcome to the Scrum GBH News's Politics Podcast. I'm Adam Riley with Peter Kadzis. Peter, greetings. Hey there, Adam. In this episode, you're going to hear a conversation I had with Scott Lehigh, the Boston Globe op-ed columnist and longtime observer of President-elect Joe Biden. Scott and I talk about Biden's many connections to Boston politics, how the Dukakis campaign ended Biden's 1988 presidential bid the year before that election, and how Biden is likely to govern when he's in the White House. But first, Peter, you have some thoughts on this weird liminal period that we're currently in and where the Democrats as a party are heading. What are you thinking? Well, I'm focusing really long term, which uh, I hope isn't a mistake. You know, uh, Maynard Keynes, the great economist, said in the long term, we're all dead. But first of all, I would say that uh, I think Biden is doing a masterful job of not being um, spooked by, let's just say, Trump's foolishness. Um, however, I do think he, he is going to face some real serious challenges from within his own party um, once he takes office. Um, the Democrats really lost ground in the House. Um, that's not good, and most people know that by now. The real danger comes in two years from now um, because historically the, the party in power loses ground in the House in the midterm elections. So already 2022 has a red flag hanging over it. Um, why, does, why does that matter, people may wonder? Well, to put it in overly simplistic terms, I, I think there could well be a civil war among the Democrats. And let's say that's between, um, again, oversimplifying those people who want to defund police, those on the left, and those in the center who don't, um, many of whom, by the way, are black. Do you see the police issue as the primary dividing line, or is that one of several issues? I'm thinking, for example, of Medicare for All or the Green New Deal going really, really big to fight climate change. Uh, are th should they be in the mix, too, or does it hinge on police reform? Oh, no. Uh, police reform is just uh, uh, an easy way to pinpoint the ideological tensions. Um, uh, Green New Deal, certainly up there. Um, Health care, certainly up there. But those are issues that have sort of, they'll be bipartisan conflict. What few people are mentioning right now is immigration. Um, I think immigration could flare up again as an issue. Now, the Democrats have been broadly dismissive of Trump's various immigration policies. Um, I understand that. But as a result over, uh, over the, the last couple of years, immigration has sort of lost its zing. President-elect Biden is um, committed to doing something about the dreamers, you know, to legalizing them, stabilizing them. I think that is going to rekindle immigration as an issue. Um, you know, we have that Don Wall that's still being built on the border with Mexico. Um, I would just, in a very general way, look for immigration to flare up once again as an issue. 
and it is a very strange period. I mean, I don't know about you, Adam. I can't remember a time when senators such as Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren are sort of actively campaigning for positions in Biden's government. I mean, to me, it, it, it's um, it's like Tinder has taken over politics, you know, swipe to the left, swipe to the right. Um, putting yourself out there strikes me as very unusual. I don't think, you know, who knows what's going to happen. I just don't think that President Biden is going to want to have two strong-willed people in his cabinet who might buck him. He needs to have uniformity. Um, and this is nothing against Sanders uh, and Warren, but it, it is a, a rather kooky situation. On so many levels. I mean, they, you, we're just talking internal Democratic stuff here. And then you've got, of course, in the background, this surreal refusal to concede that you mentioned. Oh, yeah. Which, yeah, we, we can't even get into here or we won't get into here. We'll take a little break from it. Uh, when you talk about the possibility of Biden as president tapping, say, Elizabeth Warren, that gets us back to this question of the divide in the Democratic Party that you were talking about. Our listeners will hear in a few minutes, Scott Lehigh and I kick around the question of what kind of president Biden is likely to be. And I don't want to steal thunder from that conversation. But my sense is that Biden really dreams of a return to some sort of productive bipartisanship, even though all indications are that such an MO is not really possible right now in Washington. And to me, that inclination of his is one more reason to think he's not going to go for, say, an Elizabeth Warren or a Bernie Sanders. Is that a fair read on my part? Yeah, I, I think your thinking's consistent with mine. Um, I mean, to use <laughs> it's somewhat of a paradox, the people who were pro-leave in the UK campaigned under the slogan, take back control. The Brexit people were campaigning to take back control of um, the UK from the continent. In an odd, paradoxical sort of way, that's what the people who voted for Biden were, were voting for. You know, to, to take back control of the government from um, the corrupt incompetent who has been sitting in the White House for the last four years. So Warren is one name that we've heard kicked around when it comes to a Biden cabinet. She's not the only one. Of course, you and I have talked in various venues about Boston Mayor Marty Walsh possibly heading to D.C. when Biden becomes president. What's your take on where things stand with the mayor at this point in time? Well, I have the beauty of not knowing very much about it. So that means I'll have firm opinions. Um, I, <laughs> I do know that for months he was on the long list of people who Biden would consider for things. Um, beyond that, I, I don't know much for sure. As time goes on, I can see why, why the odds may favor Walsh staying in Boston, at least for now. Um, and some things I, I haven't mentioned before. One, his, his mother is, if not 80, she's in her 80s. Um, 
he's very close to her. She's getting to a, a point in her life where she needs family care um, or, or might need that. So th there's just the natural family obligations that all of us might feel as an issue. I know secondhand, or maybe it's thirdhand, I'll let the listeners figure this out, that when I've talked to people close to Walsh, and I'm defining these people close to Walsh as not being inside, but being very much um, Team Walsh players, um, you know, they've told me, look, um, Marty's not as tight with Biden as people think he is. Yes, they have a great reputation. Yes, they share things in common. For example, they're, they're both very popular with the firefighters union. But th these people say to me, um, look, because of Elizabeth Warren and having to support the hometown candidate, you know, he didn't get out early in, in, in favor of Biden. Now, by the way, none of this is said in, with any hand-wringing, these were just people who were conversant with politics, um, saying why the odds were probably, while it's not improbable, the odds may be against it at the moment. Then I have another thought. Larry Rasky, the late Larry Rasky, um, you know, uh, another legendary political consultant, behind-the-scenes pro, um, was exceedingly close with Biden. Um, he's also very close with Mayor Walsh. You know, if many months ago there was a, a, a hope of Walsh getting into the administration, um, Rasky, I think, would have been someone to help engineer that. Um, what I'm mentioning about Rasky and Biden in Walsh is really a footnote. It, it's not a great insight. Um, well, but it's a footnote I haven't heard other people mention. And as our listeners know, so much of politics is about relationships that people create yeah. and the way those play out over the years. So that, that strikes me as a really good insight, actually. Yeah. Good. So since I'm something of a contrarian, when no one was thinking about it, I was big on Walsh going to Washington. Now that it's out there, I'm not sure how big I am about it. That's that very JP hipster of you, Peter. Very on brand. <laughs> and that's actually a perfect transition into my conversation with Scott Lehigh, the Boston Globe op-ed columnist about how Boston and Massachusetts have shaped President-elect Joe Biden's political career and what kind of president Biden is going to be. So, Scott, at the outset, what are the ties that Biden has to Boston politics or Massachusetts politics that voters should know about if they don't already? Well, there, there's some really long ties here and interesting ones and, and continuing ties. Um, when, when he first ran for Senate in 1972, um, uh, John Martilla had a firm, Martilla, Kylie, Payne, Dan Payne, uh, um, David Thorne, and there might have been some other names in there too, but it was a, at least a four-name firm. And uh, it became one of the first outside groups, really. It was kind of a, a full-service firm. They did polling, they did consulting, they did ads. Uh, and they, they somehow they got set up with Biden. And they worked for Biden in that Senate race. And that started a long relationship that John Martilla had. And John was a, just a towering figure in the consulting world here. 
um, had with Biden. So then we roll around to um, the 1987-88 campaign. And you remember uh, in that campaign, um, that was the year Dukakis ran. So the, a lot of loyalties in Massachusetts, of course, were with Dukakis, but you had a distinct Biden faction too, which of course in, in, included Martilla. And that's when uh, Larry Rasky um, got involved. Now, John, John is dead. He died about, uh, I think it was two years ago. Um, in the in the in the spring and and uh, um, uh, Biden spoke just beautifully at at, at his service um, as did I should say John Kerry and Ed Markey so um, but uh, then Larry Rasky got involved in the uh, in the eighty seven eighty eight campaign and worked for him of course that campaign didn't last that long I was talking to Will Rasky the other day who was telling me a story about. Um, Larry and his girlfriend, maybe maybe wife at the, at the time, I'm not sure, just moving into an apartment in D.C. on the day that Biden dropped out of the race. It's saying, oh, my God. But Larry worked for him in Washington for the Judiciary Committee for some considerable time. Um, then when, when Biden ran in 2008, I, I've always kind of liked the guy, so I was doing a little bit of a of uh, see if I can get some Biden interest going in New England. So, because you know, that was a race with Obama. Um, and then there was just a, you know, a, a much bigger interest in, in other candidates than there was in Obama and I say Hillary too. Uh, so uh, I, I spent some time writing some columns about Biden. I remember bouncing around in, a, in New Hampshire in an SUV with Larry and, and uh, the, the then Senator at the time. And Larry, um, I, I, one of the people who was working with Larry, assistant for Larry at the time, was Annie Tomasini, who has gone on to become, I think, one of the top people in the, I believe she was the traveling chief of staff with Biden in this campaign. She was kind of a, a young starting off politico in, in, in that era, but um, she's now a, you know, hugely influential in the Biden world. Will Rasky was up in New Hampshire. Um, for Biden doing um, kind of as the, the implant, I believe, on, on their, their state committee. So there is really kind of, there's a, you know, there are long ties here. Larry was running, um, running a treasurer of the super PAC. Of course, Larry, Larry died uh, early um, in, the, in the COVID thing of COVID. He was one of the first people that, that, that uh, I knew who, uh, who caught it and, and passed away. But uh, so there, there really are, you know, substantial ties. Tom Vallely, um, former state rep, and he's uh, at least last last time I talked to him, he's at the Kennedy School, um, doing a kind of a Vietnam program. He was a sort of a foreign policy guy. He's a Thomas a Vietnam vet, and he's a he's a Kerry guy primarily. But he he worked for Biden. Um, you know, David Wade was not a Massachusetts kid, but was a was a top Kerry uh, aide. Also, uh, also did a lot of stuff for Biden. And and uh, Mike Donlin is a um, is a, I think a Providence boy. Say boy, I mean man, but I think he grew up in Providence. So there are there are a lot of ties. I, I, I probably am forgetting someone, but but that's what that's what comes to mind off, off the top of my head. When you mentioned David Thorne, that's David Thorne, the former brother-in-law of John Kerry. Yeah. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you about the race against Dukakis for a bit. Were you at the Phoenix then, by the way? Yes, I was. Yeah, 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 yeah. And am I right that at one point in that race, after Dukakis became the nominee, what I always heard was that George H.W. Bush held up a copy of the Phoenix with a story of yours on the front. Is that apocryphal or is that true? That, that's true. Um, I had written a lot about the harbor um, and they did a couple lightning raids into Massachusetts, uh, one to get the endorsement of the of the, I don't know, the 
Boston police or someone. Uh, and they, they did another harbor tour. And I had, I had been quite, look, I was for Dukakis, and, you know, to the degree you, you were, we were kind of an opinionated paper at the Phoenix when we endorsed Dukakis. But I had written a very critical story about Dukakis in the harbor. Um, and because his record on the harbor really wasn't that good. And, and that was a big issue to me when I came. I thought, how can it be that we have this lovely harbor and it's just befouled with sewage? And I had written a, a number of pieces about that and, and they did come in and went on a boat tour and sort of held up one of them, yeah. So in the primary contest, when Biden was running in that cycle, running against Dukakis, what was the determining factor when it came to how allegiances broke down in Massachusetts? Was it about ideology or was it just that people had pre-existing relationships? Yeah, pre-existing yeah, pre conditions <laughs> is what it was. It was, I mean, it was very much that Martella and, and, and his guys had been for a long time with, with, uh, with Biden since the first run. I, I don't really remember uh, how it was that, how it was that Larry got involved, what, how that relationship started, but it wasn't, it wasn't a hugely ideological race. I mean, Dukakis was running as the, as the competent kind of, uh, you know, transitional kind of not, not a liberal, but not a, not a far left liberal, but not a, uh, you know, not a conservative kind of in the middle, a hands-on guy who can get things done, a governor, an executive. Biden was running a little tinnily on some, um, um, Stuff that Pat Cadell had dreamed up, I think, for someone else uh, as kind of the voice of the transitional voice of a new generation. And because uh, his campaign didn't go that far, and it was kind of the Dukakis campaign that, uh, that torpedoed it over the whole the whole Neil uh, Kinnick tape. I really want you to rehash that. Before you do, Pat Cadell, for people who don't know, who was Pat Cadell? Well, he was a storied uh, pollster who got his start really uh, just as a kid. I mean, I think he, uh, in college with with Jimmy Carter and and developed some new um, polling techniques that kind of tested, I, I don't understand all of it, but it tested intensity of, of feeling and he had all kinds of different scales and, and he got a couple things very right early on and and became um, just the, the, the kind of the it pollster because of that. And later on, he's also the guy who was associated with the uh, the new Coke fiasco, and, and then he became kind of the, the not in holster because people realized how much they loved old Coke. I don't know if you remember new Coke, but it was a, it had some qualities that were going to transition to a new generation or something like that. Yeah, I was going to say, if your polling claim to fame is identifying intensity and getting people to act accordingly, the new Coke episode would completely discredit you. Yes. So Canel, he was kind of an enfant terrible, and, and he... Uh, I mean, he did some work up here. I think he worked for uh, uh, Joe Kennedy, JPK too, when he first ran for Congress. And, and he, then he kind of, I don't want to say flamed out, but he was difficult to work with, I think it's fair to say, and um, uh, was not a beloved figure. He tended to think that if there were a number of opinions and his was one of them, his was always correct. And, and I, you, you saw him last, I, um, I think he would, became sort of a you know, like some like some liberals do as they, as they get older, he became a little bit of a resentful kind of maybe a neocon or I don't know, a Fox News commentator anyway. And, and um, um, I, I I believe I, I'm a little I'm a little fuzzy on this, but it, it seems to me he passed on some uh, you know uh, in the within the last year. I'm not 100 percent certain. I hope I'm not Mark Twaining him, but I, but I believe he died. I'll check before before rolling that. But my guess I, I can tell you one story about Biden. And they, as they say, in, in 2008, because I, I, I felt like Biden deserved more as a very experienced figure. 
deserved a lot more you know attention and publicity than he got so i did a i did a bunch of different columns on him and talked to him quite a bit and, and um after the first column when i i'd been with larry and and uh, him up in new hampshire um you know usually uh, people will you'll write a column and the rule seems to to be that whoever you wrote about it waits a day to act like it didn't have a big effect one way or the other. And then they call you on day two or day three to say something about it. So he called me and I'd started the column saying, the last time I covered Joe Biden when he was running, running for president, I was young and so was he. And then I went on to kind of reflect. Now at this point, Biden was in his uh, you know early 60s, I guess, or maybe mid 60s. So when he was running that, and, and he said to me, he you know, got talking about the column. He said, uh, you made me look old, Lehigh. And I said, you are old, Senator. And he sort of said that kind of blah, 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 one of those um, curses that, that you know, men who are friendly with one another will sometimes issue at one another in a sort of a jocular way. And, and, and he just kind of laughed it off. And it, it was kind of funny. But, but I was, um, you know, he was at that point, he was in his 60s. And, and I, I, you know, I, I have to say, I, I thought that would probably be his final campaign. I didn't. Uh, who would have who would have thought then that he would have another shot and become president or president-elect at, at uh, in his late 70s it's amazing what was the role that mike dukakis and the dukakis campaign played in torpedoing biden's candidacy back in the 1988 cycle <laughs> oh god oh this is like a pull it old scabs off in a way well what happened was neil kinnick who was a labor leader in um in uh, the UK and had, had run for premier, uh, prime minister, uh, had given a speech in which he talked about how he was talking about the need for social supports and for society to give, uh, give people a chance and for there to be a quality of opportunity. And he talked about why is it that my ancestors that I've done, I've been able to succeed when my ancestors hadn't. And he talked about how they had labored just you know, hard in the coal mines and, and had done all this work and, and they were good, hardworking people, but there just hadn't been the opportunity for them to do what he had, what he had done. Biden kind of adopted that speech uh, himself and he would credit, he would often, he would credit Neil Kinnock. He would say, as Neil Kinnock says, da, 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 da. And he would go on and talk about, you know, why is it? And he, and he would say the same thing. Why is it that I have been able to do this and other people haven't? And it was like, I, as I recall, it was a conversation about the need for, you know, help going to college and just, you know, the, the type of things we talk about now, really. Um, and so it, he gave the speech in one day and um, he didn't credit uh, Kinnick. And there was a tape of it. And that tape, I think, made its way from the Dukakis campaign uh, into the uh, hands of um, uh, Maureen Dowd, who wrote a long piece making fun of, of Biden. And, and he had taken some other stuff. And I, you know, I, I never really considered this a hugely plagiarism, but he had taken some lines of, of RFK and kind of incorporated them into, into his speeches. And it's, it's in that gray area of, of what is, you know, is it okay if you say something, it's an illusion, you know, what's really plagiarism? It wasn't like he had, he had taken, you know, that he was claiming that he was a, a Welch coal miner or whatever. But anyway, it became a big foo-for-aw and, and uh, 
then it got involved with other stuff and, and it became a big controversy. Today, I think people would honestly just kind of shake their head uh, and, you know, it'd be a two day story and they'd move on. But he dropped, he ended up dropping out uh, as a result of that. Not, didn't do permanent damage, but I mean, I don't think he was going to win the race anyway. Although people did in a way consider him lightning in a bottle because he was at that time thought to be quite a good speaker. And he was an interesting uh, candidate in a field that might've been a little, uh, um, metronomic, you know, so, uh, uh, I think that, I think that that was, uh, that, you know, and there, there's some lingering, obviously some lingering ill will over, over that episode for, for some years. Tell me a little about that ill will, because my understanding is, and I wasn't even living in this state at the time. I wasn't paying close attention to politics at all. I think I would have been a sophomore in high school. My understanding is that at the time, some people thought the Dukakis campaign had done something untoward or beyond the pale. Yeah, yeah, no, they, they had them. I and it was just, well, I'll tell you, one of the people who thought that was Dukakis. And, and, uh, I mean, it was just hardball politics. And it wasn't, it, it was nothing, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, um, I mean, it really wasn't, it, it, it just got hugely overplayed, I think, honestly, in a way, both on, on both sides. And um, I actually asked Dukakis because what happened, I think, is that that they, they sort of sent this torpedo off and, and um, Maureen Dowd delivered it. And um, then it, 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 people started saying, well, who did this? This was negative campaigning. Where did this come from? Where did this come from? And I think, if, if memory serves, the, the Dukakis people subtly sort tried to deflect in, in the direction of Gephardt that maybe it had come from from there, this may be just lore I'm repeating, but I, I think this was true. And then um, the, the Times Bureau started issuing statements about who hadn't done it. Well, you know, after a while, you kind of narrow things down a bit, right? Because the Gephardt campaign was getting blamed. No, oh, well, it wasn't Dick Gephardt, wasn't Paul Simon, wasn't. Well, after a while, you know, it's sort of, well, who's left in the room here? I actually asked Dukakis at a press conference, well, what, what, if it turns out it was someone in your campaign, uh, would you fire them? And I, I wish I hadn't. It was kind of a dumb question in retrospect. Well, it did turn out it was someone in their campaign. And, and um, it was John Sasso, who was a you know, top, he was a campaign manager, top, very smart operative. And, and uh, Dukakis got rid of Sasso. Sasso resigned. And it was really sad because, as I say, in retrospect, delivering, you know, it happens all the time. People say, look, here's something we believe you should know about our opponent. They didn't make it up. There was a tape and they said, here it is. And look at it. Um, it's oppo research. And, you know, if Dukakis had been a little, maybe more experienced in, in sharper elbow politics, I think he would have said, guys, look, this is politics. But then he went on a big apology tour at Iowa and said, look, I'm so sorry. Wish my campaign hadn't done this. Iowa is kind of the capital of the nice belt. Maybe you had to, but I don't think it was any necessary to say anything more than, guys, this is just the way politics work. I didn't know about it, but, you know, this is not, it's not John's fault. It's not, you know, let, let's let it play out. Given that you've been a Biden connoisseur for a long time, what are your expectations with the obvious caveat that we're in this bizarre moment when he can't start assuming the reins of power because Trump won't hand them over? Assuming that we get to Inauguration Day and he is, in fact, inaugurated, what are your expectations for how Biden will govern? I think um, that's, a, that's a good question. It's a complicated question. I, I think Biden does believe very much that in, in the old style of the, of, the, of the way he worked in the Senate, that you can bring people together around a common objective. I remember at one point um, people said to, uh, um, I remember there was a, one of the 
kind of comedy nights when uh, you know where where uh, maybe the correspondence dinner when um, Obama was speaking and he said something like this, uh, talking about the obstruction he faced, and he said, "People say to me, hey, you need to go have a drink with Mitch McConnell." And he went like this. He said. You go have a drink with Mitch McConnell. He didn't, he he was not a great one for sort of trying to throw his arm around someone's shoulder and say, hey, can we get stuff done? He kind of believed it's all in the head and, and he should be able to bring, bring people around by persuasion. I, I think Biden has much more of the sense of, look, come on, we need to get something done here and we can work together. If you can, can't you give me this? I can give you that. I think Biden will be willing to stand up a little bit to the the harder lefties, who I think I have to say should be cowed a little bit by this campaign because, um, you know, this was an A, they, they thought they were going to win in the primaries and, and they didn't. And B, this election was closer than people thought. And I think it, it gives the lie to the idea, well, a Bernie could have won or, or a um, Elizabeth Warren could have won. So I think he will have some, I hope a little, a little, um, forgiveness with the left as they say we have to compromise too. So I expect him to try to broker compromises and I would look for him to look at people like Susan Collins and Mitt Romney and this will be a very close Senate one way or the other and to try to both work with McConnell but if he can't to break off some of the people in the Republican caucus and say do you really want your time as a senator to be defined as one of the little ducklings following behind Mitch McConnell rather than someone who tried to accomplish something on a, on a larger level for the country. And I can meet you, maybe not exactly in the middle, but I, I can meet you and give you something here if you can give me something. So I do expect him to try that. Now, what Biden is not that good at is sort of explaining things the way Obama did. He's kind of a come on, man, type of guy. Um, and I think, I think, you know, so far, I got to say, I think he's been pitch perfect in the interregnum here. It just kind of, He's shrugging his shoulders at Trump, not not letting himself get sucked into it, not engaging in a, in a huge way in the idea that Trump is still, you know, has any kind of shot to, to bring this out, but also not not talking about how petty and stupid and sulky it looks on Trump's part. So I think he's played it well. And I saw the other day, you know, he said, no, I haven't talked to I haven't talked to Mitch yet, but I, I do hope too soon. I thought he played that pretty well. So I think he's got the tone. I think he, that, that isn't he isn't always great on tone, but I think he's been very good here. Um, so I expect him to try to play it that way. And who the hell knows whether he'll succeed? This isn't the Senate it was when he joined it. It isn't the Senate it was when he first ran for president. But maybe it can change. I mean, I, I, why would you want to be a senator um, who looked like you were you were just kind of a, a you know truckling to Mitch, to Mitchell, Mitch McConnell? I don't get it. Scott Lehigh, that was fascinating. Thank you for this crash course in history and politics. Hey, thank you. It was fun. Thank you. It was, I appreciate your having me. It was fun to do. And that is going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. Thanks to Scott Lehigh of the Boston Globe for joining us. And as always, thanks to you for taking the time to listen. Subscribe to The Scrum if you haven't. Rate us while you're at it. And talk back to us, please. You can email us at scrum at wgbh.org. You can also find us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Peter is at Kadzis. And our producer, Zoe Matthews, is at Zoe S. Matthews. That's Matthews with one T. We'll talk to you again next week. The Scrum is a production of GBH News.